Hello and welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. You're listening to the podcast for people who want to learn about the government market from the contracting officer's perspective. If you are a contracting officer, we hope to give you a little more insight into industry's perspective. Our mission is to make government contracting better one contract at a time. Today's episode is about subcontracting and teaming. Let's get started. Hey, Kevin, today we're going to talk about subcontracting and teaming. We are, and this is one of the many topics that I've learned a whole lot more about since moving to the industry side, so I figured it was worth talking about. All right, so before we get started, agenda, (laughs) we're going to talk about when subcontracting and teaming comes into play. We're going to go through top level, what different types of teams, why it's important to understand teaming and subcontracting, why government people should care, and why industry people should care. So first, what acquisition time zone are we in if we're talking about subcontracting? When does this come into play? This is an interesting one because it overlaps like a lot of these do. But the first one is zone two, is market research, is when you're looking at, say, the contracting officer is looking at who's going to be doing this work. They need to understand, is this something that people would team on? If they set it aside for a small business, is the small business going to have to team? All that, all those decisions are being discussed. And then, of course, it's going to apply during zone three because that's when we're writing the proposal. It's who's actually going to be doing the work. And then, of course, during zone four, you have the source selection process. And now the evaluators are judging whether or not a team of businesses can do this and right. who's going to manage the small businesses and who's going to manage all of the subs, et cetera. Yep. So and a- from the industry side, it's the same thing. During the market research zone, the industry is trying to figure out if they need to put together a team or if they can do it all themselves. They're looking at what the government's requirements are, whether teaming is required. During the RFP, the industry is trying to write a, a a cohesive story about how their team is going to work together to solve the government's problem. And during source selection, well, depending on how the source selection takes, the uh, industry may be trying their best to keep the team together and keep people available to do the work uh, if it's going to be awarded six months or more. I'm talking large large competitions here. But if it's going to be awarded a long time afterwards during the source selection phase, uh, industry has to do some care and feeding of the team to make sure it's still a team when the program's actually awarded. And, and that's a key factor because even on smaller ones, even on a, a five to $50 million, and I say smaller relative to giant systems contracts, keeping that team together is a challenge because particularly if it's a service, you've got this issue of people, they've moved on to other, they took jobs somewhere else, they moved on to new projects, or I don't know, they retired. I mean, a lot of things can happen. And I say that because I've had, Contracts that were only, you know, say only twenty five million, that still took three or four months during the source selection process because we got a lot of offers. We had to test the equipment. I mean, there's all kinds of variables to it. So understand that that process is is felt by both sides. Yeah, I think and, we we hammered that during the proposal uh, yes. schedule podcast, and and even before we've talked about it a couple of times. But the timeliness of the award does impact the quality of the team may may eventually perform the work for you yeah and this is something i didn't see yeah. as a, the idea of where the subcontractors play into the the timeline i didn't see that when i was a contracting officer so that's why we're kicking it around today this is one of those that i remember I was working a large contract and it, i was introduced to the idea of teammate there was a contract i was actually administering and the company said well they're one of our teammates and i remember thinking okay well 
the definition of teammate might be a little bit different from what I'm, because to me, it's a subcontractor, right? So I really started thinking through this. And so here are the types of teams in quotes. So the, the one that jump, is going to jump out at you is going to be competitors. There are people and companies who are competing, whether they're competing against each other for the same effort, i.e. the RFP or a contract or a task order. They're competing to be the provider for a, an individual agency. They're competing for the key people if they're a service contractor or for that matter, if they're even a, a production contractor, they're, they're in the same industry. They're competing for, the, for individual employees. So they're competing all the time. They're, they're competing for access to limited resources like testing ranges. That, that's another huge one. If there are only a few locations where you can get your equipment tested and it has to be tested in time to get your proposal submitted with all the documentation that your equipment was tested, now you're competing for resources. So they're competing for everything, right? Now, this is another one of those tension things where the stereotype is they're competing all the time. They're, there's nothing but competition and they're, they're at each other's throats. And it's, that's, not, that's the extreme. And it's kinda, it, it is hyperbole. It's, it's over-exaggerated. And one more to think about is what we call forced teams. And forced teams means the requirement for the, the FAR regulation or the opportunity or there's even, even this term called directed subcontractor. If there's a company, they're the only ones that make this piece of equipment. So the companies that are bidding on it have to go through this company. That, that happens. So that's a forced team. That's another. But they're not really competitors, okay? But they're, they're, they're competing for the resources again. This whole idea of they're competing for everything all the time is a stereotype in the extreme. It's not always the case because sometimes we have teammates. And teammates are companies who, while they're in the same industry, they're going to team sometimes. They're going to team on the same opportunities. They're going to team for the same resources. They may decide that that testing range is something that they both have equipment going there, but they can actually benefit because their, their equipment's not actually competing on a particular opportunity. They can team with resources. They can get their people to share information. So they're teaming sometimes, right? Now, here's the fun one. You have companies that do both. And that's what we call, again, I didn't make up this term, but it actually does apply, co-opetition. There are days when company A is directly competing with company B for an opportunity with Patrick Air Force Base. And then six months later, they both had the capabilities that can supply services to, to Rock Island Army Depot. So now they realize, hey, we can team together. So different customers, now they're both DOD customers, but they're, they're different customers. They have different reasons to be either competing or, or, or actually cooperating. And again, this is one of those things that happens outside of government a lot. I mean, we could do a whole treatise on what the whole idea of cooperation. I think inside of government, that's that's the case almost all the time is that that companies compete one day and and team the next from from the the biggest to the smallest. I mean, look at the aircraft manufacturers that that are fierce competitors on most everything until a major major acquisition comes down the pike and the next thing you know, they're working together because it it benefits them both to keep keep their folks employed. And, and to show what this looks like, you have an RFP where companies are large business is going to be a subcontractor, a subcontractor to a small. And I get the proposal and I get two different proposals because I need to have other than cost and pricing data, which is, I want their cost detail because this is a cost type contract. However, that large business who's a sub is oftentimes competing with that other company so they don't want to give them their cost data. They don't want to give them their cost roll-ups and their overheads and all that kind of stuff. So they send that directly to me as the contracting officer. So I end up with two different proposals. But they're teaming on this opportunity, but I clearly understand, and they clearly understand that there are other ones they're not going to be teaming on. So they don't want to give away that, that, 
you know, basically they didn't want to, they didn't want to give them that much access behind the curtain. But that's how this plays out is that there are companies that, like you just said, they'll team all the time and then they will compete all the time. It's just, it, it goes b- both ways. And it's one of those things that I didn't see as clearly how normal that is and how that's its own art form of managing those relationships and how being in a company's proposal shop, for example, like, like say they have their own little proposal room, you're in their proposal room as a teammate one month and then the next month, because it just turns out that the way this an, an opportunity was structured, you're in direct competition with them. And now you're sitting there thinking, oh crap, did we tell them anything when they were here? It's, it's, it, it is what it is. But to understand that stuff is happening, and as a contracting officer, I just didn't see it. So let's talk about the terms again, that teaming, subcontracting, vendor, those are not defined in the FAR, right? Those are words from the rest of the world, the non-FAR world. Yes, and they're all considered subcontractors. <laughs> to the contracting officer, they're all subcontractors. And subcontracting is such a, a big piece, it actually has its own FAR part. <laughs> um, and it's probably one that most people haven't read. It's FAR part 44. And it's somewhat short. It's only about 3,200 words, so 3,200 words. And by comparison, FAR part 15 is 22,000 words. So it kind of gives you a feel of this is a relatively short one. Now, I'm not going to go through this entire FAR part. You know, I'm not going to read through the whole thing for you. But to give you a feel for subcontract is defined there. And it seems any contract to furnish supplies or services to a prime contractor. Okay, that's pretty simple, right? And a subcontractor means anyone who supplies supplies, services, distributes items as a vendor, a firm that furnishes something to a prime. Okay, so that's kind of where that comes from. So when you get into this issue of teammate versus vendor, it's all mushed together. So to understand, again, we're not making this stuff up. This is how you would read it out of the form. Right, and when you come from a vendor level, there may not be formal teaming or subcontractor arrangements. Like, we are going to work together for this. If if you have 10 offers, if you're the contracting officer and you have 10 offers for something, they may all be using a product from the same vendor and get, they may have the exact same quotes from the vendors. So it's very easy to get hung around the, the axle on the individual words. But let me give you an example of what that looks like for one of the big projects we did for a client. Is it, it we had we had to break them out by there's the prime, and then there are subcontractors, and then there are vendors, and then there are suppliers. And because the supplier is providing the piece parts that goes to the vendor who makes the equipment and the equipment comes to the subcontractor who puts it together and puts it into the system that the prime provides. Do you follow all that? Now, as a contracting officer, they're all subcontractors. <laughs> but there's a supply chain here that, that the business side has to understand because that's what they're promising to deliver. This prime is delivering this solution. All the pieces and parts that go into that, that's really what FAR Part 44 is to talk about. Okay, rewind. Why would companies team in the first place? Oh, that's a fun question. There are lots of answers I could, I could pick up for you. The one that jumps out is because they need to. They, they really don't have the capability to do everything. And sometimes they have to sub to somebody who has a product, or sometimes it's a directed sub, or it's a capability they don't have, or, or they're required to. <laughs> if right. you're a large business, you, you've got this thing called a subcontracting plan that you have to meet. Right. And in, uh, on the industry side, in the non-government business side, you don't pick up a partner or a subcontractor for any reason other than it, than it makes sense. The required two-piece doesn't exist outside of government contracting. So that's where you, 
the government this is this is the the inefficiencies of of being a government contractor is sometimes you're required to do things by by regulation like add small businesses to your team or even a certain subtype of small business to your team when it makes no sense it doesn't make you more efficient it doesn't make you less expensive as a matter of fact it probably complicates things but why you a team is different in non-government business than it is in business not all the time but some teaming arrangements go back to those forced teams that wouldn't exist if it were if it weren't for the regulations so another example of the unintended consequences of the structure for these big contracts one of the things that i notice is that when you have a large contract for i don't know say like a hundred million dollar contract that's set aside for small business one of the unintended consequences of that is effectively you're forcing a company to have teaming partners and all of the inefficiencies that come with that. For example, the company now has to have, let's say, four or five other partners to be able to do everything in the statement of work or the performance work statement, which now one of those skills that the prime has to have is you have to have experience managing, managing other contractors. Now compare that to instead of bunching everything in, into one giant contract, if it had been one small, five smaller ones. And so, so let me show you what I mean. If you have an enterprise-wide contract, you say, I need a small, this is a small business set-aside, just regular small business, not, you know, not hub zone or anything like that. It's a small business set-aside to manage the IT infrastructure for this base. Okay, that's a, that's a big project. It's probably going to be a big contract, right? And in fact, it definitely would be a big contract. So now, as a small business set-aside, because you know small businesses can do it, but what you've created now, instead of having an efficient contract that one small or one or two small businesses can do, you're effectively saying, okay, I need what's called a mid-sized small business, i.e. somebody who they're still a small business, but they've been around long enough that they can manage other, other, other subcontractors, or whether those are large or not. But the idea is now you have somebody who can manage a team. That skill set is something that takes a little while to, to develop. So then you've created this complexity in the overall acquisition and then going back to the, under, under the idea of just get something done, what if you had done five smaller contracts and to, that only one company is going to do this part? Let's say one company is going to manage the SharePoint. One company is going to make sure the network works. One company is going to make sure that the, the internet access fiber optics are going to work, you know, all, whatever. Now you have a government program manager that's going to manage all that. I understand that. But ma- understand that the, this is something I didn't see as clearly. The bigger you get these contracts, you essentially force that management over to the contractor. That's one more complexity. I didn't, it wasn't glaringly obvious to me when I was a contracting officer like it is now that the bigger that contracts get, you are, you're essentially saying either I'm going to have a large business do it or I'm going to have a mishmash of small teams. And you can be okay with that, but know it going in. So that leads us right to why, why should the government care about this, this teaming stuff? We've already talked a bit. Companies are not enemies all the time. And they're not friends all the time either. In the absence of the government forcing a teaming arrangement, companies will they will build the team that's best to satisfy the government's requirement. And if the government team wants a real vote on this, this is what you put in Section M. You make it an evaluation criteria. Or, even better, you make it part of the market research. And you say, if we put this RFP out, is it important to have subcontractors or would you want to do this yourself? And this goes back to my whole attitude of punt those questions to industry instead of trying to guess them yourself. So when the government's sitting back trying to decide whether or not 
they should set aside the entire competition. In other words, only allow small businesses to bid on something. Are there small businesses that are capable of doing it? That's another point when they're for that market research phase. If if small businesses can't do it all by themselves, are there small businesses that could do certain parts of it that you could mandate small business set-asides to the primes rather than at the government level? So you have large businesses that compete for the award, but they have to use small businesses for a certain percentage of the work or a certain piece of the work. That's what RFIs are for. Requests for information is for that very purpose of punt that out to industry and say, hey, we're thinking of, doing, thinking of doing it this way. What do you think? And let them answer your questions. Why should industry care about, about teaming and about the government's understanding of the, the teaming opportunities that are out there? The government team needs to understand what subs would bring to the table or not bring to the table. It's, it's you know, your, your RFI statement is dead on. That's, that's industry's chance to explain to the government whether there's any added value to teaming or whether this is just a pure regulatory, oh, it's time to have 20% small businesses involved. And as the proposer, you need to make the case that the subcontractor brings something. That's, that's why industry cares. So you need to do that because the government folks, here's, what, here's something funny. They're likely only going to see it as a pass-through. And it sounds kind of cynical, but you know what? Don't believe me? Check out Clause 52215-23 limitation of pass-through charges. And what that basically says is if you're going to have subs, you don't get like, it uses the term excessive pass-through charge. But the reality is that's, as a contracting officer, every time you bring on somebody that you're just, they're doing the work and then, and then you're managing them, the expectation is what, what do they bring that you can't do yourself or how are you going to manage them that makes sense? And of course, that you don't have excessive pass-through charges. So it can get really complicated in a hurry. I touched on this before. Anytime that you bring in other companies, you're you're adding inefficiencies to, to the program from a management perspective. You're making it more difficult to manage the program. So in a vacuum, without the government requiring any specific teaming arrangements, small business set-asides, small business requirements in Section M, Industry is going to make the decisions. They're going to bring on the teammates they need, the vendors and the subcontractors that make for the most efficient delivery of whatever the government's trying to buy. When the government force adds those things, for good socioeconomic reasons, I'm sure, it, it builds in inefficiency and it creates more complexity to the management, more, more cost, because if you have multiple subcontractors, somebody's got to manage those subcontractors and pay their bills and receive their invoices and all those other things. And rather than one management structure, you now have multiple management structures. You have the government program office managing a prime contract to prime contractor to deliver whatever they need. And then you have the prime contractor managing the subcontractors and so on and so on and so on. The less people involved, the easier it usually is. And, and one last closing thought here is that in the end, the government folks just want one belly button. That's where I that going back to the beginning of this, this cast, this idea of when somebody mentioned to me, oh, he's one of our teammates. That was the contract that's happened on. I remember thinking that they're a subcontractor. And then I was brand new at the, in the position. And the more I got to know how, the, how big and complex and how many moving parts the spider web, spider web of a contract had, I realized that me as a contracting officer, 
he's my one interface. This one, you know, the program, and actually, yeah, the program manager and their contracts guy, they were my interface to this. It was like a pinhole into this giant network behind them. But at the end of the day, my contract's with them. That giant network behind them, while I know it's there and while I, I you know, care about it in, a, in an ethereal way, in reality, when the, when the ship sinks, I'm looking at them. So that understand that you need to show you can, you can be the guy that keeps the ship from sinking if you're going to be the prime contractor. That management exists on one side of the line or the other. On the government side, you can either spend the money on having a large program office with all these people to manage those, those interfaces and to, to, so that the government is that belly button. Or you can spend the money to have the contractor to do it. But regardless, somebody's got to be responsible for the whole thing. And you got to decide that up front. Bingo. So before we wrap it up, think about this. The government has clauses written that, that limit the amount of, of money that contractors can make by, on pass-through charges, in quotes. So this is, this is when subcontractors have an inordinate amount of the overall work on a program. But at the same time, the government forcibly requires contractors to team in in some cases. So there's a balance that's trying to be achieved there. And in the end, you want to get that balance, the correct balance for this particular program. Otherwise, you get it all out of whack and you have an inefficient, more expensive project than you need because the line between the amount of subcontractors and vendors that would be chosen in a vacuum and the amount that regulations requiring is not in the right place. Does that make sense? It does. And another fun part I just thought of while, while we're going through this is on one hand, the expectation is 23% of contracts will be subcontracted to small business or will be given to small business. A lot of that's going to be through subcontract. And then at the same time, there's, there are clauses that say, oh, but you can't subcontract too much. For example, 52.219-14, the limitation on subcontracting. So this is, this is a really thread-the-needle kind of conversation because you, you want to subcontract out some, but you can't subcontract out too much. But if you don't have the individual capabilities to, to actually hit it out of the park with a particular contract, then it goes back to the targeting conversation of should you even be going after it in the first place. So If, you're, if you have to bolt on too many teammates, that should tell you something. So this is the, the perfect wrap-up for... The consistent theme of communicate, 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 that all that, all this stuff can and should be talked about early in the acquisition process, in the market research process, figuring out what teaming opportunities are out there, what, what's available, what's required. These are things that the government needs to share their thoughts of it and industry needs to share their thoughts of it at the beginning of the process. And that's the best way to end up with a better contract. Good point. Okay, listeners, if the podcast is enough for you, that's awesome. If you want more, if you want to get more in-depth, you can join the Skyway Connection community. You can, and go to skywayacquisition.com slash connect and use the promo code podcast, and you could try it for a few days for free because we just want you to understand that this thing is built to help people who are listening to the podcast and everybody who wants to learn more about government contract. Remember to connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And as always, Write us a review on iTunes. Writing a review on iTunes for us makes us more visible to people who are looking for this content. And we're giving away this information for free. So please help people find it. Yeah, so this is a good point to say thanks. We've gotten a few new reviews on iTunes. So let's thank that girl, 
Modern Historian, and 89 Mr. Dibs for their recent reviews. You're helping others find the podcast. Yeah, we appreciate that a lot. One more thing, Kevin, why don't you tell them about the newest way to learn more about the government market? Oh, what a setup. So I just published a book, and the book is called Save Your Time. A former contracting officer explains why the government market may or may not be right for you. And the idea is if you're curious about this market, if you stumbled upon the podcast and you're just, this is very interesting stuff to you, honestly, get the book, use the promo code podcast. You get it on smashwords.com. You can get it for five bucks. And the idea is you pick this book up in LA and by the time you land in New York, you'll know whether or not the federal market is for you. You can get it on Smashwords or on Amazon or just, again, email us. It's going to be on the contractingofficer.com podcast. All right, Kevin. I'll talk to you later. All right. See you. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. As always, if you have questions, comments, or complaints, go to contractingofficerpodcast.com, hit the contact button, and let us know what you think. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.